So we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 14, talking about our, our God who fights for us. The, the power of surprise is very strong in battle. A surprise is an unexpected action. It actually means to take, um, to overcome. It's to confuse. It catches people off guard. And I saw a martial arts blogger that said, the trickiest opponents are beginners and masters. A master knows a lot, and so they know how to surprise you, but a beginner just does something totally unexpected because they don't, they haven't been trained yet, and so they'll do attacks that you weren't really like, what was that? That's not our style or whatever. And so uh, um, he, he also quoted from this book, The Art of War, an ancient book of strategy by a Chinese general. It says, engage people with what they expect. It settles them into predictable patterns of response, occupying their minds while you wait for the extraordinary moment, that which they cannot anticipate. So that, that surprise, that extraordinary moment where they're caught off guard because they've been just lulled into a pattern. And life has a way through its daily grind of lulling us into a pattern. And there are things that will surprise us, catch us off guard. It's the punch that you don't see coming that knocks you off your feet. We can plan for every possible outcome, and there will still be surprises, things that are unexpected and unplanned. And as God tarries, Jesus said, we will surely face tribulation. We will be persecuted. There will be pressures and afflictions and troubles. And these things have been promised to us. Yet, in the face of these surprises, we'd rather avoid. Jesus commanded in John 16, 13, These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the command is, be of good cheer. I have overcome. Jesus has won. And uh, through faith, we also overcome by his grace. Like light overcomes all darkness, the peace of God is greater than any tribulation. We don't always feel that way, though, do we? Because the pain can be very raw and real. And when we're surprised, it's even harder to handle. It's like if you go in for a surgery, you expect that there would be some pain and some rehabilitation and some things, but it's when someone says something to you that just cuts you or a situation happens that was unforeseen and you feel unwarranted, that is hard to recover from. But it's our joyful endurance through these trials that proves to unbelievers the reality of the gospel. It proves the reality of Christ's power within our own lives. I've been reading uh, Richard Wormbrand's book, Tortured for Christ. And in that book, he speaks of things that we've probably never experienced, where for 14 years he was, held, he, was, he was literally kidnapped off the street, put into a van, put in a prison 30 feet below the surface of the earth, and isolated for 14 years, being brainwashed 17 hours a day, no color in his life, he forgot how to write, and uh, it was through his witness and those other captors who loved their tormentors that many of those torturers came to Christ. And they put down their weapons of torture. And it's like his whole life was ripped away from him, and yet he clung to Jesus. 
and it's such a testimony of how God, even in difficult times, can fill our lives with such love that the world cannot know. That we could have love and compassion for others despite our suffering. So the suffering doesn't necessarily, well, it doesn't go away. But we can love in the midst of suffering. And we'll all suffer in different ways. I think of Nehemiah. His struggles didn't happen in a prison. But while he was organizing a building project, he was trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that's where his struggles came because he had enemies all around him. He had discouragement even among the Jews. And the enemies seemed tireless in their attack and their angles to try to undermine the work. But how he dealt with that threat is how we can receive some instruction and strength today. So let's pray and thank the Lord. Father, thank you that you are good to us, that you've, you've opened our eyes to see that you are life, that you are light, and in you is no darkness at all. That even when the tribulations occur, when we do suffer, that you're with us every step, that you won't leave us or forsake us, and that we can call out to you, and you will hear, and you will answer. You will fight for us, and we can rest assured in your peace, experiencing your presence, even at the even at our deepest, darkest moments. Thank you, Lord, that there's no pit too deep that you cannot reach us. There's no um, distance too great for your love to span. And we pray that you would speak to us each and teach us to apply your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 14. After hearing the threat of the enemy's attack, Nehemiah says, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Last week we talked about how there were enemies literally on all sides and they were conspiring together to fight against those rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. And the workers had grown weary and discouraged and they say there's so much rubbish it's hard to do. Um, It's just it's hard and I can see people getting weaker and we're not going to be able to do this. But Nehemiah urged them to continue. After he sought the Lord he exhorted them not to be afraid to remember the Lord, and to be ready to defend at all times. Instead of being put off working because of the danger, we see it actually goaded them to work more as we go through this passage. They had a greater commitment to work because of the threat. As one, they were united instead of just quitting working. That's what the enemy wanted. They wanted to make them afraid so they'd stop working. Their enemies hoped that uh, they could... Uh, discourage them, but it had the opposite effect. They actually banded together and worked to, it's like they discovered this sense of purpose that they almost didn't have before through the tribulation. So word reached Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, that the Jews heard of their plans and they were prepared and the power of their surprise attack was gone. So they said, well, there's really no sense in attacking because they're prepared for it. They called the bluff of their enemies with an unbeatable hand, the hand of God, who would sustain them, who would help them. And it's on that day when they went back to work that they won a great victory. 
Though there had not been a single casualty of their enemies, a spear had not been thrown, a sword had not been swung, no gates had been battered down, they won that day. And I'm convinced that the miraculous victories God gives us don't often look like the victory we think it should look like. It doesn't occur in the way or look the way that maybe even the world would recognize as a victory. We don't see it. Perhaps victory for us is to see our enemies destroyed, to see them come to justice, to see the truth come out for everyone, to see uh, Tobiah and Sambalat in prison or unable to do their dirty dealings anymore. But that's not how it worked. Maybe for you, it's to get that cash settlement or to see the offender uh, punished or to have justice in our mind done. Then we've won. But really, the battle is won in our own hearts and minds. That's where the that victory is won. When we face opposition, we keep trusting God and we refuse to give up. And we keep doing the thing that God has told us to do. That's when the victory is won. Now, the enemy, they could still scheme. They could still plot. They were still free, in a sense. They weren't beaten, but the Israelites had won because they were trusting God, and they went back to work. I I connect victory with like a boxer, you know, like Rocky. He's a little beat up. He's a bit worse for wear, but he's like, yes, and he's being hoisted up, and his enemy looks a lot worse. You know, his opponent is on the mat, knocked out, concussed, like, like he's like, please, I want to retire. I'm done. You got me really good that time. That's victory to me, is when my enemy looks like that. But that's not how it always looks in our walk with Christ, where we have victory without the enemy really even taking a punch. But we still are walking in victory because Jesus has given us that. I like what Guzik said. He said, victory is enduring the attack and continuing the progress and work for the Lord. That's victory. The consequence of their victory was, number one, they kept on working. And number two, the text says their enemies knew that God brought their plot to nothing. So it's like, oh man, they've got swords and spears now. We might as well not go. But they go, wow, God did something. They shouldn't have been able to to stand against this, but they did. You know, I have a friend, very dear to my soul. She's suffered through cancer for, I'll say, at least 10 years, maybe 15 um, and people talk of beating cancer. And to me, when you say you've beaten cancer, it means you've endured treatments and you've come to a point where a doctor has said, you are cancer-free. That's beating cancer. But this woman is an inspiration to me because she, she has carried on in spite of cancer that's been throughout her whole body for this entire time. Where I go to a service and she is the first to arrive and she is the last to leave because God gives her strength day by day. She may outlive me at the rate that we're going. Um, but it should her day come, whether through the rapture or the death of her body, I am convinced that cancer, she has not lost a battle with cancer because she kicks the snot out of it every day because she loves Jesus and she's not afraid to keep serving him and keep loving him and keep being a light wherever she goes. 
And she gave me a book years ago. It's called Evidence Not Seen. And in the foreword, in the dedication, it says something pretty cool. It says, an old Roman coin was found on which was a picture of an ox, one of the servants of man. The ox was facing two things, an altar and a plow. The inscription said, ready for either. And I think that's very telling. You know, that beast of burden, it's ready to be an offering. It's also willing to pull a plow. And as Christians, we are really called to do both, to work for the Lord and to be a living sacrifice unto him every day. Maybe not to be a martyr, but to keep on going in in spite of obstacles and in spite of difficulty and pain to realize Jesus has won. He has won. And even when our, our life on earth ends, death has not won because Jesus has claimed that victory through his shed blood. So may we be like that, uh, these believers, these followers of God who were willing to work even when there were enemies on all sides, refusing to quit. We can be victorious in that situation. Walls are only half high. Enemies are all around, and yet still working, still productive. God was with them, and he'll be with us too. Nehemiah 4.16, So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. After that plot was foiled, Nehemiah ensured the people remained vigilant. Half of his servants worked in construction, the other half they wore armor, they had their weapons ready, and even those who carried uh, burdens or who were working, they had a weapon at their side. So at a moment's notice, they could defend themselves and fight. They continued to work, but they were prepared should an attack come. C.H. Spurgeon, he had a magazine. It's been compiled into books. I did bring another book just as a prop. This is called The Sword and the Trowel. And uh, he wrote a magazine years ago. It's compiled, I think, into seven volumes. I have a couple of them. Um, But he writes why, why he called it The Sword and the Trowel. He says, we would ply the trowel with untiring hand for the building up of Jerusalem's dilapidated walls and wield the sword with vigor and valor against the enemies of the truth. The priority, though, as much as the sword, we can talk about the necessity to fight, the priority was building. It's very important to have this balance. They were builders who were prepared and willing to fight, not fighters who were able to to build. See, if we get that wrong, if we mix that up, if we focus on the fighting part, all the enemies that are out there, and we need to defend ourselves, and we need to be aggressive towards them, well, the enemy has achieved his purpose because we're not building. We're not edifying. The church isn't being strengthened. People are not being encouraged. So we need to be primarily building, but ready to defend, ready to fight if the enemy comes being on guard for those attacks, knowing that, hey, attacks will come. Things will be difficult. 
and they'll be in ways that we don't expect. Nehemiah had a man, it says, beside him who was ready with the trumpet to sound the alarm. As we'll see, that trumpet was a rallying cry. People would come to where Nehemiah was to unite against their foes. Now, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said something interesting. He says, the word of God is the sword of the spirit, which we ought to have always at hand and never to seek, both in our labors and in our conflicts as Christians. And I had to read that sentence twice because I'm like, what does he mean? Always have it at hand and never to seek it. Well, the meaning is, is that uh, we should never misplace it. It always ought to be at hand. Like, you know, you misplace your glasses or your keys. Um, if, if the enemy was coming, you wouldn't want to be looking for your sword. You would want to have it at hand. So at a moment's notice, you could defend yourself, you know, parry and attack. We have to have the word of God in us. That's the best way is when we have it hidden in our hearts. Then we begin to live out the truths of it in our lives. And we have, we have access to the Bible like never before with apps and books and audio, but we have to be diligent in applying it to our lives. We have to labor to master it and allow it to master us because uh, putting a sword in someone's hand does not make them a warrior. It doesn't teach them how to use the sword. Same thing with memorizing scripture or having a Bible does not make you skilled in applying the truth to your own life, right? We can know a lot of scripture, but unless we apply it to the situation that we're dealing with, then it's going to be of no value to us at that time. So we need to learn how to use God's word in our labor and in our conflicts. And I'll say a lot of times when I face conflict, the Bible is not necessarily the first thing that I turn to. I may have a lot of filters that goes through until I go, well, what does God have to say about this in conflict? And in labor. Consider for a moment, when you're unsettled, when you're confused, when you're afraid, when there's uncertainty in your life, how often do you seek God for counsel and wisdom before considering your own? There's this thing about knowledge where we can have theological doctrines, we can have beliefs, but they can remain in an abstract realm that really don't touch our lives in a daily basis. It's kind of like a friend of mine in the States who used to collect swords, and he would have these swords up on his wall. They weren't for fighting. They were just for looking at. They were decor. And uh, I remember taking one of them in my hand, and I was like impressed. I'm like, oh, man, this thing is weighty. And, oh, it's not really sharp. And then he had some that were sharp. So some that were sharp, some that were just there, but they were all for looking at. The point is, gods they were just for ornamentation, not for fighting. God's word, it's compared to a sword not to be admired, not to go, oh, that's heavy, you know, that's weighty, and just stop there. But for us to use in everyday life for life and salvation. That's what it's for, to guide us into truth, to protect us. And if God's word can't handle the issues that you're facing today, What power do you suppose does it have for eternity or or to save a soul or to change your life? Like the fact that it changes lives and saves people and guides people, it shows me that it will be effective for eternity. Nehemiah 4.19. We'll go more into that in a minute. 
Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. By virtue of the the job site that they were working on, they were working on a wall, so they were quite spread out from one another. And Nehemiah had by his side a man with a trumpet, which was a signal to gather. He says, wherever you hear it, that's where you're supposed to go. Gather to us there. And then they were reminded, our God will fight for us. That's very comforting to know. Our God will fight for us. God can fight his people. Uh, he can fight for his people wherever they are, can't he? So wherever we are, God can fight for us. But for some reason, there weren't many rallying points. There was one. Rally to the trumpet. That's where I am. That's where we're going to fight. And that's where God's going to fight for us when we rally together. It's interesting because they had them working on areas as families or as part of a tribe, but they weren't to be isolated with just their little group or their family. But when the trumpet sounded, they were all together as one rallying to that trumpet. And as Christians, we're called to rally to Christ. He's the one that we rally around. He's the one that we come to. And uh, someday that trumpet is going to sound and we're going to be with him. And that's going to be awesome. But while we remain here, when we seek him together, he will fight for us. King Saul, he gave David some good counsel. Uh, he said, he gave his daughter Michal to David in marriage and said, fight the Lord's battles, David. Now, King Saul often mistook his own battles for God's battles. Uh, so that was his mistake. But it's good advice. You know, fight the Lord's battles. You know, don't be fighting against me, David, <laughs> please. Um, it does no good for us to fight God's battles our way or to fight our battles our way. We need to choose God's way. We need to rally to our Savior who fights for us. God seems to employ tons of different ways to save his people and deliver them, just like Jesus never healed people in the exact same way. Some he just spoke to them, others he touched them, Others, as they went, they were healed. You just go on and on, different ways. And you can think about when God saved his people from their enemies. Always different. Sometimes he thundered against them. Other times, you know, when you hear the sound of the marching in the trees, that's when you go forth. Or walk around the city so many times, and, and the walls will fall down flat, and you'll just walk in. So God's able to deliver in ways that um, we would not be able to predict. Unexpected, surprising. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were delivered through the fire. Who would have guessed that? That we could be saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's pretty unexpected. The people continued to faithfully build. They held spears, it said. Now, sword on the hip is not so easy to see, but a spear, that's a show of force. That's something you could see from a distance and go, okay. They've got their weapons out. They're prepared and ready. And it let their enemies know it. It discouraged a surprise attack because they were prepared. They weren't going to be caught off guard. And that's good for us to know as well. Verse 22, At the same time I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, 
that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. It's a good thing. Man, you probably smell those walls from a distance. In addition to being, so they hear about the threat of this attack, right? So they're armed. Half of the people are armed and guarding. The other people are working, ready to fight. And then they even take it a step further. He says, guys, don't even bother going home. Let's stay here overnight. Security guards by night, work party during the day. We're going to get this done. They were so dedicated and determined. And they wouldn't be caught with their pants down literally. He says, hey, we took a shower here and there, you know, a bath. But uh, that's the only time we disrobed because we were going to get this job done. I love how Nehemiah is all in. He's willing to sacrifice his own comfort. He's come from the palace in Shushan, and he's coordinating the effort. He doesn't say, okay, guys, good job out there. Keep working hard. And then he retired to his tour bus, loaded up with you know, cold drinks and little nibblies for him to snack on with people fanning him and stuff. Like, no, he's out there with him. He says, me, my servants, we're all out there. And we said, let's stay overnight. We're going to get this done. Let's work together. He says, with my brothers, my servants, those on guard. And we see greater sacrifice and humility and dedication with Christ, who not only ate with sinners, but he washed their feet. It doesn't say that Nehemiah washed the feet of these people. But Jesus did. All royals, they have a, a place where they can be sequestered, you know, gates and walls and security, and they have armies at their command. Uh, royals, they schedule public appearances with barricades and security guards, and, and uh, they keep a distance between themselves and common people. But Jesus, the Son of God, he became a commoner. As Paul was saying, he became a child, he became a baby who needed to be held who had a mother, who had a a father on earth. And he served the lowest people. He didn't just reserve his time for the affluent or the socially um, ranked people. He went to the lowest, the sick people, the poor people, the lepers. He stopped in the road to heal blind people who called out to him. Even those who hated him, he served and loved them. It was faith in God that allowed Nehemiah and his people in Israel to continue building even when their enemies gathered against them. And through faith, Jesus, he humbled himself. He became a servant who would suffer. That's one thing that marked Christ as he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He suffered greatly in his time on earth. And if we're going to trust God's word with our eternal salvation, then we have to put it in practice in our own lives. Genuine faith, it's expressed through common things like standing guard and building a wall. You know, a building project can be a step of faith. It's pretty crazy. An example of this, Jeremiah, he was a prophet that God told to say some pretty strong things to people. And he says, by the way, they're not going to listen to you. But I want you to say it anyway. So for years and years, decades, Jeremiah is speaking the truth. For decades, people are not listening to him. And they're actually doing the exact thing that he says not to do. And there was a point where he was aware of a plot to assassinate him. 
where they were wanting to kill him. And so he questions God, and he questions his justice, and he says, why don't you just get rid of these evil people? You know, they're bringing us down. Just kill them. Just get rid of them. And God's surprising, he answers in a surprising way in Jeremiah 12, 5. He says, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? That's an interesting response. He's saying, if you think things are tough now and it's wearing you out, what about when things come to your attention that you have no idea about, that you haven't faced yet? God would reveal in the following verses that even his own family had joined that plot to kill him. And so he, God's saying, you think you can run with the footmen? You think you can do this? Well, you can only run with the footmen because I'm helping you. And if I help you, you can contend with horses. And no matter how bad things seem to get, they can always get worse, can't they? We say, things cannot get worse than this. And then what happens? Things get worse. They can get worse. So God's like, I, hey, Jeremiah, I know things that would frankly shock you right now. You're struggling with the footmen. There's horses coming. You can't handle it on your own. You need me. Trust me. Keep believing me. Keep obeying me. And Nehemiah realized he was able to do a great work because God was with him. God helped him with the footmen, and God would help him with those horses. It's a good question for us. If we've been wearied by the footmen, how can we contend with horses? If the grind of life just by itself is wearing us down, what strength do we have to stand against an invisible enemy? You know, how, what strength do we have to fight a spiritual battle against Satan? If we apply this, the problems in this Nehemiah passage primarily to spiritual things, it's, it's an easy thing. I think it's far more useful for us to apply it to how we walk courageously, boldly, and be at peace among ourselves and facing conflict in situations that we find confronting and impossible. Because since God's word is true, it, it should have a positive effect and an empowerment in our actual life, not just fighting invisible foes. If we can't be experiencing God's peace and joy in the midst of trouble now, with people we can see, how can we contend with the forces of darkness? Let me put this another way. Jesus had infinite spiritual power. He, he had the power to forgive sins. How did he prove that? He proved it by healing a man. He did something practical that people could see and go, wait a second. Jesus is saying he's the son of God. Only God has the power to forgive sins, but he just healed the guy. That man who was laying down, he's now, and paralyzed, he's walking. And so the power of God was manifested in a real physical way. And the people could see that and go, wow. And when we are facing turmoil and difficulty and strife, and we still have the peace and the joy of the Lord, that's proof of the power of God in the life of a person, where they can look at that and go, wow, this person's praising God with cancer. This person's serving God in the middle of a broken relationship. This person is praising God when I know they feel awful and terrible things have been said to them. 
How strange would it be for someone to claim spiritual victory when they're despairing of life, they're ruined without hope, they're afraid, paralyzed by grief, and unable to to trust God. Like, it would be a weird thing, right, to say, I, I have power, I have victory over the spiritual forces of darkness, and yet, practically speaking, every day, you're not experiencing that. So let's take heart, brothers and sisters. Let's, let's seek to walk, really to rally to Christ and to walk in his strength now, today, in the, in the real world that we're living in so that other people can come to Christ, so that we can seek God's help in the little things and in the big things because I'm not sufficient for the little things. I used to think I was, but I'm not. I can't run with the footmen. They tire me out. You know, like, like David, where he says, oh, you know, this is too much for me. And I used to go, David, what a pansy. But it's like, you know, I can really identify with David, where he's like, guys, come on. It's way, way beyond me. I can't deal with this. And it's a good thing when we can say, God, I can't deal with this. But, you know, I am going to take up the sword, not to hack and slash people, but I'm going to defend your truth, and I'm going to keep trusting you. I'm going to keep laboring for you. God, this, this verse that really stood out to me is where he said, God fights for his people. God will fight for you. And I want to just camp on that for a couple of moments. Because we see God actually doing that countless times through scripture. In Exodus 14, when they came out of the land of Egypt, and unexpectedly the whole Egyptian army is pursuing them, and the people are frantic and They don't know what to do. Moses said in Exodus 14, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He's going to fight for you. In 1 Samuel 7, the Philistines, they had a surprise attack against the Israelites when they had just gone up to worship. They were just going to offer sacrifices. And the Philistines see them and go, Perfect opportunity. We've got them now. And they start to attack. And it says that God thundered against them and confused them. And they just were... defeated, demoralized. In 2 Chronicles 20, the Ammonites and Moabites came against King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. They prayed to God and said, God, this force that's coming against us, we cannot beat them. We have, we have no recourse. There's nothing we can do. And they just sought God. And the Holy Spirit came upon Jehaziel, who said, do not be afraid or dismayed because the battle is not yours, but God's. How awesome that God took ownership of that battle. He's like, this isn't your fight. This is my fight. And the worship leaders led them to battle the next day. And God turned their swords against each other. And it took three days for them to gather up the spoil of the slain. And they didn't even shoot anything. The battle was the Lord's. In 2 Chronicles 32, King Hezekiah, he urges the people to be strong when the Assyrians had come. And they're threatening and and uh, the name is um, eluding me at the moment. But, you know, he's shouting obscenities at them. He's threatening them. He's uh, Rabshakeh with Sennacherib. You know, they're, they're like insulting them. And, and uh, the people are afraid because the Assyrian war machine had chewed through every uh, nation until them. And 
King Hezekiah, he urged the people, he says, be strong and courageous because the Lord's with us to fight our battles. Countless times God has fought for those people who are his and delivered them. Men of God have been overcome. Men of God have run from the battle. But God has never been overcome, nor will he be. I'm sure you guys have seen some Hollywood films where they have those rousing speeches of you know, men pumping up their, uh, their troops before the battle. They see their men wavering a bit and... Yeah, you know, the enemy is strong. But guys, it's a good cause. I think of uh, of William Wallace in Braveheart, you know. He tells the men of Scotland to fight for their freedom. And at the sight of the enemy, one of the lads suggests, you know, why don't we run? We'll, we'll live. He's like, oh, you know, run away. I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. And he says, dying in your beds year from now, years from now, wouldn't you rather trade all that time to say, we are going to fight for our freedom? And like, yeah, let's do it, you know. And, and in Hollywood, they don't run, because then it wouldn't be much of a show, especially at the end. You know, you've got to go through with it. You've got Aragon in Tolkien's fantasy, Return of the King. He's rousing a small band of men from Gondor to fight the hordes of Mordor at the Black Gate. Like the entire Mordor is emptying to fight this little group of men and an elf and a dwarf and whoever else was there. But he says, this is what he says when he's trying to, because see, his future, the future of humanity hinges on these people fighting hard. And he says, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day, an hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day, this day we fight. And so he's just getting them all pumped up and they're like, yeah, let's do it. And then they run out there and actually do it. Um, But... Our God is so different than these Hollywood heroes. And I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 20 to see how different he is. He doesn't try to emotionally pump us up. He doesn't say, fight for your freedom or stand up for yourself. He, he doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't, he doesn't manipulate. He doesn't coerce. He, he's not going to brand your face with a C as a coward as they used to do in the Civil War in the United States. If you were, if you fled in the battle, you would have a brand on your face that you would have to wear for the rest of your life because you were a coward. You were branded. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't coerce us. He doesn't force us. He doesn't cajole us or try to emotionally pump us up like, guys, let's do it. That's why, that's why we have church on Sundays. So you can get all pumped up to face the week. No, that's not what we're here for. My role is to remind us to look to Jesus who fights our battles. So Deuteronomy 20, and this is awesome, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them, 
For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. This is a very amazing thing to have in the law. There were nations that dwarfed the Israelites for the size of their armies, their physical imposing size, their weaponry, their walls and gates. I mean, the the Israelites at one point said, we're like grasshoppers compared to these guys. These giants up in the north, how can we beat them? But instead of looking to their numbers or looking to their weapons, instead of looking to their enemies, God said, look to me. It was the priest, not a king or a general who went out before the people. And he spoke to them. He was to say this on the verge of every battle. He doesn't tell the people, consider your freedom, you know, fight for your families. They were reminded not to fear, number one. Number two, God's with you to fight for you and to save you. Now the verses continue in a very surprising way. Everyone was given the opportunity, in fact, encouraged to leave. Mm, very different than uh, William Wallace and Aragon's moments. Deuteronomy 20, verse 5 says, Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and is not dedicated? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicated. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. The officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. So the officers stand up and they say, Hey, anybody have a house that you've built but you haven't dedicated to the Lord yet? Well, go on home. Uh, have you have you planted a vineyard, but you haven't tasted the grapes yet? Yeah, on your bike. You know, we go home, please. We encourage you go home. Uh, have you been married, but you haven't yet consummated your marriage? Go home, lest another man marry your wife. Um, are are you lacking courage today? Do you feel faint? Please go home. Again and again. I mean, it's like you haven't eaten those grapes yet. Go home. You just built a house. Go home. You're going to be married? Go. It's totally different, right? Quite a contrast. In one sense, the priests, the officers, they didn't need many men. They just needed the ones who trusted God. Because God was with them to fight for them. And if you weren't of that mind, or if something else came up, and you're like, you know what? Ah, I do need to take care of that business. Go home. Fighting and winning was a matter of faith in God. It wasn't about weapons. It wasn't about training. It wasn't about what you're fighting for. It was really who's fighting for you. It's God's battle. And we get to receive that victory when we trust in him. And I want to finish with verse 9. Isn't it cool that the captains were not even chosen until all who were willing to fight were gathered as one, trusting God. Those roles were not set. You had officers, you had leaders, but they needed to make sure that everyone who was there wanted to be there and was going to trust God 
and then they chose who was going to be the leading, who was going to lead this group. Okay, you take a band over there, and you go from the rear and, you know, get ready. And So, do you realize in the battle that you face, I don't know, what, like it says, when you see those chariots and those people and those weapons and you feel a bit scared, I don't know what that is for you. What the thing that's looming in front of you or the, the surprise attack that's going to come this very week. I don't know what makes you afraid or what makes you uncomfortable or fearful. But in the face of that very thing, we're commanded by the Lord to not fear, to remember our great and awesome God, and choose to go to battle knowing that God is with us and he will fight for us. I believe among us there are some captains who will stand up and who will say, you know, I am going to go forward. I am going to trust God. And I believe that he is going to fight my battles. He's with me. And as we rally together to Christ, know that the battle is the Lord's. He has won. So we can take courage. He will save. He will deliver. Until now, you may have been wearied by the footmen and so discouraged at the thought that there could be horses. But no, those who trust in the Lord will find their strength renewed. They will be able to contend. They will be able to stand, having done all to stand, as we read in Ephesians chapter 6. God takes the fearful and the faint. Those who trust him, he makes them as bold as lions. Remember the Lord. Praise him. Thank him. It's our God who fights for us when we rally to him. Let's thank him. Father, thank you for just this passage and the way that you operate, that you don't need us, but you invite us to partake in your victory, that you're the one who fights for us. You're the one who, who can deal with the footmen and the horses, the things that weary us, the things that make us afraid. Lord, you say, do not be afraid. Lord, forgive us when we have been. Forgive us when we've given a place to fear in our lives. And I pray that our fear uh, would not remain, but would be made perfect through your love. Where you say, uh, your love casts out all fear. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you've demonstrated that through Christ, and that we can rally to you and with one another honor you through being uh, ready to serve you, to honor you, even in the midst of enemies and in the midst of difficult situations. Lord, I pray for everyone here that we'd be able to apply this word to our lives practically and that we would uh, walk in the victory that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I pray your blessings upon each one of them, on their families, on their lives, that you would continue to guide and direct us, that we would always have your word at hand. We'd never have to look for it, but we would look through it, Lord, as we seek to to find your answers, and to learn how to honor and glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.